Welcome to Screen Facts with Jason Davis. Listen to the podcast every Wednesday for a discussion and trivia about a different film. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Thanks, Kim. If you need a female voice for your voiceover project, check out kimsvoice.com. That's K-Y-M-S-Voice.com. And joining me again today on the podcast is my good friend, and definitely one of the greatest and most influential people I'm blessed to have in my life, my former radio program director, Les Sinclair. Hello, sir. Howdy, hi. And and by the way, just as a personal note, Kim McKay is an awesome voice talent. Yes, I agree. I wouldn't have it any other way on the podcast. No, so I'm excited to hear the finished podcast with her at the beginning. It's going to be awesome. So we are going to talk about a movie today that is a really long one. <laughs> yeah, three hours, eight minutes, something like that. Yeah. Uh, It's a great flick, though. It's worth the time investment if you've never seen it, uh, or even if you have, watching it again. The Green Mile is the movie we're talking about today. Released December 10th, 1999, originally. Directed by Frank Darabont. Screenplay was also written by Frank Darabont, and that's the guy who also did The Shawshank Redemption, another Stephen King story. This is an interesting one, Les, because Darabont had really a monumental task in bringing this one to the screen. The original story was crammed into six serialized Stephen King novels, and he had to make that into one screenplay. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I can't imagine what that would be like, but Durabont is really amazing with script. I was checking him out. He has done Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. He did The Blob. He did The Fly 2. And you mentioned The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile. He also did The Mist, which is another Stephen King movie. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize he worked on one of the Freddy Krueger movies. That's interesting. Yeah, he's a a script genius, apparently. Saving Private Ryan, he was the script doctor there, and Minority Report for Steven Spielberg. Oh, wow. Man, he's done a lot of great stuff. Yeah, I understand. He also worked on uh, Indiana Jones, uh, the the Crystal Skull, mm-hmm. um, and Steven Spielberg really liked it, but George Lucas didn't, so they tossed it out. He really takes his time, though, and and which is evident in this movie. Uh, he likes to spread things out, and I think he did a real good job with this. I mean, granted, it's three hours and eight minutes long, but I think they did a really good job of digging into the characters. Stephen King calls this film the single most faithful adaptation of his work, so that's probably why it's so long, because he really wanted to get all the characters and all the nuance from the stories into um, the script. Now remember, six novels into one screenplay, so it, I mean, it's probably no way that it's going to be less than three hours. Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing the uh, the work that this guy must have had to put in. Absolutely. And Stephen King compared Darabont's job of writing the screenplay to stealing all the towels at a Holiday Inn and trying to cram <laughs> them into one suitcase. So, yeah, definitely um, a great job with the screenplay in, in addition to the direction of the movie. Uh, a lot of great people in this flick, too. Tom Hanks, of course. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and he agreed to do this movie because he couldn't do Shawshank Redemption. He um, was asked to do Shawshank Redemption, and he had to turn that down because of Forrest Gump. And as I mentioned in the Shawshank Redemption podcast, it kind of worked out okay for uh, for Tom Hanks there doing Forrest Gump. And this one worked out okay for him as well because yes. it is, the, what, the highest grossing Stephen King movie to date. Yes, it is. He didn't win the Oscar for this, but he's he's fantastic in it, just the same. No, it's funny you mentioned the Oscars, though, because Hanks and Durbont met at the Academy Awards in 1994. Oh, Okay. So that's, you know, how they, I guess, formed their uh, their collaboration and all that. Mm-hmm. Pretty Indeed. cool. Michael Clark Duncan uh, is the co-star. Of course, 
Um, he was nominated for the Oscar for this movie, and he hadn't really done a lot of stuff prior to this. He um, mostly played like tough guy roles, bouncers and uh, yeah. security guard, which is what he the jobs he had in real life. Yeah, and he was a ditch digger too. He was but a ditch digger, yeah, yeah. He had been in Armageddon with Bruce Willis, and Bruce Willis was the guy who actually suggested Michael Clark Duncan for the role of John Coffey. So kudos to you, Bruce Willis. <laughs> yeah, he he pulled the right one out, didn't he? Absolutely. He's fantastic in this movie. Uh, David Morse, Bonnie Hunt, James Cromwell, and Michael Jeter also star in the movie. Estimated budget of $60 million. It grossed $136.8 million in the U.S., $286.8 million worldwide. And like you said, out of more than 30 stories of Stephen King's that have been made into movies, this is the only one to have broken the $100 million mark at the North American box office as of November 2007. That's amazing to me. That it broke the 100 million mark? That it's the only one to do that. Yeah, well, I like Stephen King stories, but when they turned them into movies, they never seemed to end right, except for Shawshank Redemption and this mm-hmm. one, which is kind of interesting because they're the offshoots. You know, they're they're the not normal, super frightening, scary movies that Stephen King is known for. And these are the two that I think really are the the bar. You know, I mean, they set the standard for so many great movies. Yeah, I think maybe the problem with a lot of the sto- the movies that are based on Stephen King's stories is that they almost have a very slasher-like feel to them. Yeah. The other great movie made from a Stephen King story that's uh, probably in the same league as these two, as The Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption, of course, is Stand By Me. Right. Which is terrific as well. And And a lot of people also forget that The Running Man... With Arnold Schwarzenegger, that story is a Stephen King story, although he uses his pseudonym for that one, Richard Bachman. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So, and that's more science fiction. So, yeah, I think, you know, you're probably onto something there that the movies that are kind of more human interest or less uh, horror uh, that Stephen King does are the ones that usually translate better to movies. You mentioned the box office, too. It's uh, over 100 million in America, but it's almost 300 million worldwide. So, yeah. it's, a, it's a huge movie. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's funny because this one's not on TV nearly as much as the Shawshank Redemption is. I was online and I was reading some quotes and and somebody mentioned there ought to be a Tom Hanks channel. And I thought, you know, you'd watch it all the time, wouldn't it? It would be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, he's got so many great movies that uh, they wouldn't really be hurting for programming on that channel. So in addition to Michael Clark Duncan being nominated for the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for this, also he was nominated for a Golden Globe and a Screen Actors Guild Award for his performance. But the other uh, things that this was nominated for at the Oscars, Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Sound. One of the things that I noticed as I'm watching this, I'm going through, I'm going, wow, Michael Clark Duncan is no longer with us. And neither is Michael Jeter. Yeah, Michael Clark Duncan died pretty suddenly. He had a heart attack, I believe. Um, yeah, he was relatively young. Yeah, he was like 50 or 51. Um, the other guy uh, that's definitely passed on is the guy who plays the old version of Tom Hanks' character. Dabs right. Greer is his name. This was his last movie, and he's best known as the preacher on Little House on the Prairie. That's right. Yes. He had quite a career, 65 years in TV and movie. So he did he uh, did okay. <laughs> another one of the actors that had quite a career and is still with us at 89 years old is Harry Dean Stanton, who plays the guy, um, I can't remember his character's name, but he's the Green Mile, walking the Green Mile, walking yeah. the Green Mile guy. Yeah, he's a great character actor. He's been in a lot of things. Um, he was in Cool Hound Luke, too, so he was yeah. in another prison movie. Yeah, he's uh, an underrated guy. You don't really hear a lot of uh, accolades for him, but he's been around forever, too. All right, one of the things I wanted to talk about 
which is the other character that no one seems to notice. And that is this plot point of peeing. There's a whole lot of peeing in this movie. Tom Hanks is in the water closet three times. Okay. The, well, that's. Uh, I, I'm just going to interrupt you for one second. That's important in the story because he has the, the urinary tract infection. That's right. Okay. Then, then there is Percy wets himself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Wild Bill pees on the guard's shoes. That's so right. There is, there, and, and peeing is not unusual in a Tom Hanks movie. There's a lot of peeing going on. There's this movie where he pees at least three times. There's Force Gumps where he says, I gotta pee. <laughs> right? There's the money pit where he gets peed on by the statue outside in the fountain. There's Apollo 13 where he demonstrates how to pee in space. There's Castaway where he pees in the ocean. He talks about a guy peeing a V on somebody's chest and saving Private Ryan in the terminal. He has to run to the bathroom, and he, uh, again, he, he peed three times in this movie. So there's a lot of peeing in Tom Hanks' life. So there you go. You learn a lot of things when you listen to the Screen Facts podcast, and one of them that you learned today is that Tom Hanks likes to urinate. He does. Who knew? <laughs> Sylvester Stallone punches people, Tom Hanks pees. You know, I never picked up on that. That's oh, very and I think I, I think I neglected to mention... A League of Their Own, which is the minute and eight second P scene. Oh, yeah. The Road to road to Perdition, where the hitman misses him because he was in the loo. And, uh, of course, The Burbs, where he says, I got to go pee as an excuse to, to leave the group. So oh there's a lot of peeing in Tom Hanks' life. This is the greatest discovery ever. I never even realized that. <laughs> well, it's one of the things that I notice about Tom Hanks. I, I There's another one, too. This is a complete offshoot, but I think Tom Cruise has it in his contract that he gets to sing in every one of his movies. Not necessarily well, but he uh, does. Usually and, not well. <laughs> and I think there's something in Tom Hanks' contract where he gets to pee or talk about it in every single movie. That's really interesting. Yeah, I never noticed that before. And, and I'm like, I'm pretty astute, astute? when it comes to movies. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's uh, it's very crazy. I don't know where to go from there. That's crazy. <laughs> so the prison guards wear uniforms in the movie, and it's really done to give the movie sort of a better feel. Uniforms weren't used at the time in which the movie is set, which is, I think, 1935 or so. The prison is the Tennessee State Penitentiary, and a lot of the film was shot on a Hollywood soundstage on a set so confining, just 1,000 square feet, that Tom Hanks compared shooting there to doing time in a real prison. Exterior shots were filmed later outside Nashville. And it's interesting, with all of the peeing, uh, they <laughs> they tried to get him to play the old version of himself in this movie, too, but it, it just didn't work out uh, because of the makeup not really being convincing enough. And that's when they brought in Dabs Greer, the older actor, yeah. um, to play the old version of Paul Edgecombe. Nowadays, they probably would just do it digitally. Yeah. Back to your years, uh, you know, you talked about the, the prison uniforms mm -hmm. and they didn't wear them. But they also moved this movie from 1932 to 1935 because they wanted to work in the, the movie reference of Top Hat, which didn't come out till 1935. Yeah. So they, that was one of the things they all had to do. Also, this is kind of interesting that in Louisiana, they didn't replace the gallows with the chair until 1940. So oh, that's there's no way he would have been electrocuted to death. He would have been sent to the gallows and hung. Yeah, but again, both of those things were necessary for making the yeah. story happen for it obvious really reasons. John Coffey, Michael Clark Duncan's character, looks larger than life in the movie. As it turns out, yeah. Duncan was about the same height as co-star David Morse, who plays um, Brutus. Brutal. Brutal, mm -hmm. yeah. And he was a couple of inches shorter than James Cromwell, who plays the warden. Six foot seven. It's amazing. Yes. I mean, he looks massive. Michael yes. Clark Duncan in this movie. And uh, so what they did was they used creative camera angles 
to make him look taller. Well, there's one scene where you can see him getting off of his cot in his cell mm -hmm. and you can watch his legs where he's putting them up on the platform where he's to stand so that he can tower above everyone else. So it's kind of interesting. If you if you pay real close attention to that scene, you'll see him lifting his leg to put it on on the uh, platform. <laughs> You notice that and Tom Hanks peeing a lot, right? Yeah, it's the little things, really. It's the little things. <laughs> so the John Coffey character name came from a college professor, Reverend John Coffey, that Stephen King had met once. He really liked his name, and Reverend Coffey taught history classes at Emerson College in Boston. He retired in May of 2005. So it's always interesting to find out the origin of character names. So that's where John Coffey comes from. There's a lot of speculation, or there was at least, about uh, the initials JC being about Jesus Christ. And, and then Stephen King said, no, no, it's the, it's yeah. the professor. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly uh, a lot of religious connotation to this flick, without a doubt. I mean, there's the miracle stuff that he does. And man, it's so good. That the, the miracles he performs and all that. Yeah. And it's really great because when you're watching the movie and it starts out and he's got the two little girls, the two bloody little girls, and it's, it looks pretty clear that he killed them. Michael Clark Duncan said that shooting those scenes really scared him because he had the mob of white people coming after him. He yeah. really felt the fear uh, that that guy would have felt. Oh, I believe it. Very powerful stuff. Some There's a lot of great characters in this movie, though. It's not just him. I mean... Percy, Doug Hutchinson's character. You know, I'm watching this movie and I'm going, man, this guy is a dick. I mean, you just hate yeah. that guy. He's really, really convincing. I was talking to my wife when we were watching it and I thought, you know, he's a really good actor. I mean, he, he seems like a really smarmy individual in yep. real life. But as an actor goes, I mean, there at one point he's got tears streaming down his face before mm -hmm. he shoots Wild Bill. I mean, he's he's really got the acting thing down and he does come across as the character that he's supposed to be. Yeah. And they actually did things physically to him to make him even more annoying. They gave him the squeakiest shoes that they could find. So when he would walk around, I mean, even that would be something that would annoy you about him. Yeah, but he's just he's just great. In the story, in the book, he's supposed to be a guy that's like really in love with his physical appearance, too. He's always fixing his hair. And he does that a little bit in the movie. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he's just uh, <laughs> he's just he was really, really he bad. He was supposed to be, I understand, in the book around 21. And when they hired him, they asked him how old he was. And he said his late 20s, which was, I think was a uh, uh, I think that was a lie at the time. Yeah. Uh, he, he said he was actually in his early to mid 30s, but he was 39. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, but he really pulls it off. I mean, I don't know if I'm looking at him going, yeah, he's 21. He definitely looks younger than the rest of the guards. So I guess yeah. you can you can suspend disbelief a little bit there, too. For me, his age didn't matter to the story one little bit. It was his character right. and the essence of that that really, really stood out. Agreed. Michael Jeter is fantastic in this movie, too, uh, as Delacroix, right? Delacroix. Delacroix, yeah. So he worked with a dialect coach to pull off the Cajun accent, and he taught himself how to say the Lord's Prayer in Creole as well to, uh, to add a little more authenticity. And uh, he's quietly reciting it during Dell's execution scene. This is kind of interesting. In my research on this, uh, I found out that Paul Edgecombe's wife died uh, when uh, apparently this is in the book. So um, it happened in 1956. And they were in a, a bus crash, and that's how Paul Edgecombe's wife passed away. There are theories on how long he will live because of this gift, 
quote unquote, that he was given. Because if Mr. Jangles lived to be however old Mr. Jangles was in mouse years, yeah. as as a human, he would live to be over 200 easily, they're saying. The mouse is great, though. I love <laughs> I love how the mouse, Mr. Jingles is like, you know, at the in the end when he's a really old mouse, like he looks yeah. old, but he still does his thing, you know? Yeah. They did have some trained mice. But they use uh, some digital effects, some CGI to, to perform some of that trickery in the movie. So um, there's a couple of cool things about Mr. Jingles, too. Um, first off, Percy, when he first sees Mr. Jingles, he refers to him, he calls him scurvy. And it's kind of ironic because scurvy is a condition caused by a lack of vitamin C. Mice have an active gene that synthesizes vitamin C. So there's no way that a, a, a mouse could ever get scurvy. I remember scurvy when I was in high school. A lot of people would say, oh, she's got scurvy. <laughs> it's like, Come on, really? Well, it, you know, it probably meant something else. <laughs> I think maybe it did. Yes. Yeah. So they use like 15 trained mice and CGI effects. And the American Humane Association made sure that no real mice were harmed during the filming, of course. Yeah, you wouldn't want to stomp on a real mouse. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Not in the movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's, a, there's a scene in the book. He uh, Brutal originally calls the mouse Steamboat Willie, which makes a whole lot of sense. Right. Uh, that's an homage to, of course, Mickey Mouse. Right, the first Walt Disney cartoon. Mm -hmm. The music that played over the loudspeakers in the retirement home uh, when old Paul Edgecombe is uh, walking out of his room. Yeah. It's the same music that plays uh, at medication time in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> which I think is pretty cool. It's interesting, too, how the hallway, the floor is green. It's it's very much his own green mile. Yes, I noticed that as well. And and, and that's really a, a pivotal point when he's talking about, you know, we're all walking our own green mile. That's, yeah, that's pretty amazing. So as great as Tom Hanks is as Paul Edgecombe, he wasn't the first choice, which I think is really interesting. John Travolta was offered the role. <laughs> <laughs> but he turned it down. I can't even begin to imagine John Travolta as Paul Edgecombe in this movie. <laughs> this is amazing to me because when, when you think about these super movies, these movies that are timeless and last forever, and if somebody else had gotten the part, I think it's sort of like the Super Bowl. You and I have had this conversation where it's like the World Series team or the Super Bowl team. If you add one other player, that might not have happened. And I, I think when you think about movies like this one where – John Travolta? No mm. way. That couldn't have happened. That could not have been the same movie. Yeah. Travolta's not a bad actor by any means. He's He's been good in a lot of things that he's done, but he just doesn't strike me as a guy that would be good in this role because yeah. to me, the role of Paul Edgecombe seems very sort of down to earth. And I, I just don't think of John Travolta that way. Not ever. Not ever is he down to earth. Yeah. He's Look always who's talking is the, probably the most down to earth thing he's ever mm -hmm. done, right? Yeah. You know, another character, they were shopping the part of Wild Bill Wharton uh, that Sam Rockwell got. Mm -hmm. They were shopping that to Josh Brolin, which I think maybe he could have pulled that off. Yeah, probably, because he's done but, kind of brooding roles like that. But Rockwell is fantastic. Oh, man. He, he is really one of those uh, actors that people don't even realize how good he is. I agree with that. I'm going to recommend something. This is a little off of Green Mile really quick. He did a movie a year or two ago called The Way, Way Back. Yes. Did you see that? I have seen that. Very, very good. And and the great thing about that role for him is it's completely different from everything else he's ever done. Most of the time, Rockwell plays bad guys or really intense guys and stuff like that. But in the way, way back, he's almost like a Bill Murray character. Yeah, he's he's, he's down to earth again. Yep. Uh, as you said, he's he's almost a normal guy. The role actually reminds me of Bill Murray's role in Meatballs. So if you ever get a chance to see the way, way back, uh, I recommend it. It's very good. I was doing some research and I found that Mr. Jingles has his own Facebook page too. Yes, I did read that. <laughs> I didn't like it though. I don't know. 
Kind of cheesy. <laughs> oh, hey <laughs> Good one, Les. <laughs> hey, I also uh, read that the actors on this let themselves go because they really didn't have to worry about their appearances and they wanted to sort of look the part of the time where people yeah. were not exercising and make sure that they were fit. So they, they sort of put on a couple of extra pounds. Mm -hmm. I even understand that Bonnie Hunt put on an extra 15 pounds for this role. Didn't she say something like, it was real easy, I just looked at the food <laughs> or something like that. I love her. She's great. She's one of the funniest women alive. Yeah, she was uh, also very good in Jerry Maguire as uh, Renee Zellweger's older sister. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, she really is. Yep, another underrated person that you don't really hear a lot about. You know, you, everybody always talks about how great Meryl Streep is and people like that. But Bonnie Hunt has made a, a nice little career of kind of flying under the radar a little bit. There's a lot of actors in this movie that have appeared in other Stephen King adaptations, too. Harry Dean Stanton is one of them. He was in Christine. But uh, David Morse, brutal, was also in Hearts in Atlanta. James Cromwell appeared in Salem's Lot. Patricia yep. Clarkson was in the TV movie version of Carrie in 2002. Jeffrey DeMunn and William Sadler were in The Shawshank Redemption, as well as The Mist, both directed by Frank Darabont. And right. Gary Sinise appeared in The Stand. He was Stu Redman, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool that a lot of these same actors, and I think Darabont is pretty much known for using a lot of the same people in, in the projects that he does as well. You know, though, when you think about the number of Stephen King books that have been turned into movies, it's 30 at this point. Yeah, uh, that's that, that leaves a lot of room for a lot of actors to partake in some of his work. That's true. There's another interesting casting note too. The Green Mile uh, features three actors who have portrayed real life U.S. presidents as well. David Morse played George Washington and John Adams. Gary Sinise played Harry S. Truman and Truman. And James Cromwell played George H.W. Bush in W. Very good. Most of Stephen King's novels are set in his native state of Maine. The Green Mile takes place in Louisiana. However, there is a shout out to Maine in the story. Edgecombe, Tom Hanks's character, is uh, the name of a town on Maine's mid coast. He gets Maine in there somehow. <laughs> he always does. He loves it there in his home state. I thought it was interesting when he woke up in the middle of the night with the urinary tract infection. And he's got to go outside to go to the bathroom. No indoor plumbing. I thought indoor plumbing happened way earlier than 1935. They're in Louisiana, and mm. they're in not uh, uh, an urban population. They're sort of out in the boondocks, if you will. Yeah. So, you know, even as recently as the 1970s, some people in here in Virginia haven't didn't have indoor plumbing. So, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, well, it, you know, that's the way it goes sometimes. The more I think about this movie and some of the other films he's done, Tom Hanks is definitely one of my favorites. For me, Tom Hanks and or Will Smith are so great. They're, they're just fantastic actors. And I think of an actor as somebody who is fantastic when they can act by themselves. Sam Rockwell may have done that in that movie Space, but I haven't seen it, so I can't talk about it. There's Castaway with Tom Hanks, where he is on the island for pretty much most of the movie, yep. yet he conveys emotion and entertains us. And Will Smith in I Am Legend, where for the predominance of the movie, he is alone. I still think the edge goes to Tom Hanks for me just because he is so likable. Yeah, he's definitely established himself as uh, as the guy without a doubt. He's, you know, probably pound for pound the best known and the most successful American actor. His previous 10 movies before doing The Green Mile were all critical successes and earned over $3.2 billion worldwide. He's also really good at picking up an accent. You know, he did uh, Louisiana here and Forrest mm -hmm. Gump. He did Alabama. Catch Me If You Can. I think he did Boston and then Captain Phillips. He also did sort of a Massachusetts accent as well. 
Which, by the way, he peed in Captain Phillips. <laughs> of course he did. He was on the ocean, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> he must have really good penmanship when he writes his name in the snow. <laughs> oh, man. And that's the other thing, too. We're talking about Tom Hanks and, and all the other actors in this movie. This is really, truly a great ensemble piece. This is like the Super Bowl team. If you change one of those people out of yeah. there, that chemistry might have been different, and it might not have been what it was. I mean, even down to the, I don't know the actor's name, but he played the Indian, the first one they executed. He is so good, and, and one of those actors that has been around for a really long time, and you see him in stuff, and you go, oh yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah, Graham Greene. He was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Dances with Wolves. Yeah, he's a phenomenal actor actor as well. Yep. Well, I don't know if I have any more to say about The Green Mile other than watch it if you haven't in a while or if you've never seen it. I don't think we gave away too many of the uh, the plot points in the movie. So if you've listened to this podcast having not seen The Green Mile, I don't think we ruined it for you. <laughs> no. And, and if you've watched it, well, go watch it again now knowing this stuff and you'll be even more highly entertained. That's what I say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Les, I really appreciate you taking the time to do the podcast with me. It's been a long time and, and I'm really sorry for that. I've been wanting to have you on, but you know, our schedules don't always jive, so I really appreciate you making the time to, to do the podcast with me. I'm very happy to do it. I love doing this podcast. It's uh, always entertaining. Awesome. Thanks. And if you have any thoughts or screen facts of your own about the Green Mile, if you have any comments about the podcast, please email me at screenfacts at yahoo.com. You can also tweet me at Jason Davis Voice. Find me on Facebook, too, at facebook.com slash Jason Davis voiceover. Les, where can people find you on social media? Uh, they can find me everywhere at Les Sinclair. Please rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes. And if you enjoyed the podcast or other episodes, please tell people. Help us spread the word. We really appreciate it. Thanks again to our announcer, Kim, from kimsvoice.com. <laughs> Applause. That's kymsvoice.com. And thanks to you for listening. Talk to you again next week. Screen Facts with Jason Davis is a production of Jason Davis VoiceOver. Please visit jasondavisvoice.com if you need a voice for a commercial, narration, promo, internet video, e-learning or training program, and more. Click on the podcast page to purchase a t-shirt and support the show, or get information about where you can download and listen to past episodes. Listen again next Wednesday for a new episode of Screen Facts with Jason Davis. Jason Davis.